This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. Today, your genes and how you go with COVID-19. But have they found a genetic explanation for why some people don't seem to catch the disease? Do warning labels on sugary foods work? How not to overdose on vitamin supplements? And which diet is best at preventing cancer? And if you've been diagnosed with cancer, which is more likely to improve your outcome? A whole food, plant-based diet or a low-carb, ketogenic diet? Dr Neil Iyengar of the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Centre in New York has recently published an extensive review of the evidence. Thank you for having me. I mean, this diet debate goes back ages. I can remember a time when extremely low-fat diets were tested in cancer prevention and indeed improved cancer outcomes. You focused in this study on a whole food, plant-based diet and a ketogenic diet. Let's just get the definitions right. What are we talking about in terms of these diets? That is a great question because particularly with the plant-based diets and, and even the ketogenic diet, there is a lot of variation. If we start with a plant-based diet, I generally consider a plant-based diet to be one in which 80 to 90% of the nutritional intake essentially comes from plant sources. And to go one step further, we were particularly interested in whole food plant-based diets. And this is essentially where we would further define that 80 to 90% as minimally processed or minimally altered plant-based products as the major component of the diet leaving a little bit of wiggle room for non-plant-based products. And that's where we differentiate a plant-based diet from, say, a full-on vegetarian diet or a full-on vegan diet. And when you say unmanipulated, you're talking about it's not a protein ball. It's what Michael Pollan, the uh, food writer, would say is uh, food that your grandmother would recognize as food. Yes, exactly, exactly. This is foods from the garden, if you will, that are minimally altered, cooked in your kitchen uh, and put on your plate. Okay, let's go to the keto diet because, again, there's lots of confusion here because people are on low carbs, they're on 5-2 diets, they're on time-restricted diets. Right, and so when we're talking about a ketogenic diet, at least in the context of this research, We're essentially talking about diets whereby the body is forced to use a different type of fuel, ketone bodies, hence the name of the the diet. The way in which a person achieves ketosis is important, but may be more variable based on the individual. The more common way to define a ketogenic diet is actually the macronutrient ratios, so the ratios of carbohydrates to proteins to fat. And the majority of ketogenic diets are essentially high in protein and low in carbohydrate. And that's because we're replacing the carbohydrate with protein. When we say low in carbohydrate, we mean very low, generally less than 30 to 40 grams a day of carbohydrates. Let's start with the epidemiological evidence, looking at what trials have been done and also the broad patterns in the population. What do we know about these two diets on a broad front when you look at the population evidence before we get to the biochemistry, what they do to your bodies? The vast majority of population or observational evidence is actually regarding plant-based diets. We have several large cohort studies which have looked at the relationship between consumption of mostly plant-based foods and the incidence or the occurrence of various cancers. And what we see there are strong associations 
that have been found repeatedly across many different studies, many different populations, and many different geographic regions, a strong association between higher consumption of plant-based products and lower incidence of several different cancers, predominantly cancers that are related to metabolism, like insulin levels, inflammation. And so these tend to be breast cancer, ovarian cancer, colon cancer, and so forth. At least 13 different cancers are metabolically mediated and have a lower incidence in populations that report higher intake of plant-based foods. And the ketogenic diet? So the ketogenic diet, in terms of the observational data, is less robust. And This is where we sort of get into difficulties with regard to definitions of the ketogenic diet. Generally speaking, we see studies that have categorized diets as low-carbohydrate diets. Low-carbohydrate diets have been associated with a lowering of risk of some cancers, although the associations are not as strong as what we see in the the plant-based diets. But when we really dive down to ketogenic diets, there are very few studies that cleanly look at the relationship in large populations between those who consume ketogenic diet and the incidence of cancer. And the results of those studies are mixed. Some studies have found a protective effect or a protective association, I should say, with the ketogenic diet and a few cancers. Now, those studies are a bit problematic because it is difficult to tease out whether it truly was the ketosis or whether or not it was weight loss or other factors that are achieved with the ketogenic diet that may also be achieved with the plant-based diet. So then let's dig down and compare, if you like, the biochemistry, what these diets do in your body. And of course, the word on everybody's lips or tongue, I should say, is microbiome. When you put these side by side in terms of a whole food plant-based diet and ketogenic diet, what did you find? Well, there's far more data with plant-based diets than there are with ketogenic diets. What we did find was that individuals or populations that consume plant-based diets seem to have far more favorable changes in their gut microbiome than those who consume ketogenic diets. There are some studies that suggest that the diversity of the gut microbiome may actually decrease with ketogenic diets, and that's likely related to more singular sources of protein, namely animal. You also looked at the where you lose your weight from when you're on these two diets, and your suggestion is that on the ketogenic diet, you lose more muscle. Yes. One of the things that we're very concerned about is body composition. Individuals with advanced cancer can have wasting syndromes or cachexia where they have very low volume of muscle. And we also know that muscle can be protective against the development of cancer. One of the things we were interested in in our review of the available data was whether or not these diets differentially impacted body composition. And we did generally see for those who were using either diet, the plant-based diet or the ketogenic diet for weight loss purposes, we did see that those who consumed plant-based diets were more likely to lose higher amounts of fat compared to muscle, whereas individuals consuming a ketogenic diet with the goal of weight loss had either an equal loss of fat and muscle or sometimes a greater loss of muscle than fat, which was particularly concerning as we know that muscle is protective against the development of cancer. Half the world seems to be on either a 5-2 diet 
In other words, five days of fairly free eating, two days maybe on 500 calories each, which are ketogenic days, or time-restricted eating where you don't eat anything from maybe 8 o'clock in the evening till about 1 or 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Have any of those been tested in terms of cancer prevention or the effects on the body that might lead to cancer prevention? There's great interest in time-mediated feeding and, and fasting. It turns out that fasting has positive impacts on insulin levels, which of course is a protective effect against cancer. However, individuals who follow an intermittent fasting type diet after achieving a healthy body weight, for example, may actually be exposing themselves to a higher risk of losing muscle mass. And from a cancer perspective, again, that that is very concerning. Now, one of the first questions that any cancer specialist gets from someone with cancer after they've got over the shock of the diagnosis is, how should I change my diet doctor to benefit myself? Did you come to any sort of answer there? Because clearly, if diets change your metabolism, diets can affect how your cancer progresses and it might even interfere or enhance the drugs you're giving. What did you discover about that? This is such an important question. And I think that historically, we as oncologists have really not paid enough attention to this question, even though patients are asking us this question, as, as you pointed out. My strong recommendation is to follow a plant-based diet. But I will make one major caveat to that. And that is that there are certainly very specific types of cancer where the ketogenic diet may actually be beneficial. And we are studying that in randomized controlled trials. But by far, for most cancers, the plant-based diet carries the most cancer protective effects. And which cancers are they that may have a ketogenic benefit? Well, there are certain tumors that are highly dependent on insulin or that are treated with medications that drive up insulin levels. And while a plant-based diet can be very successful at lowering those insulin levels, there are actually studies in mice which suggest that for tumors that have a specific type of genetic mutation called a PI3 kinase mutation, specifically breast tumors with PI3 kinase mutations that are treated with PI3 kinase inhibitors, the ketogenic diet may be beneficial for improving the efficacy of that cancer treatment. That needs to be proven in humans, and we have an ongoing study that is testing that question. But there are other PI3 kinase mutated cancers, like certain blood cancers or leukemias, where the ketogenic diet may actually have the opposite effect and and be harmful. So before we go recommending the ketogenic diet for every person with that type of cancer, a PI3 kinase mutated cancer, We really need to wait for the human diet. And in the meantime, the plant-based diet still appears to be protective for those types of cancers. So bottom line, Neil, is whether you've got cancer or you're trying to prevent it, bias yourself towards a whole food plant-based diet. Watch how you lose your weight so that you maintain muscle mass and retain ketogenic diets, at least at the moment, for highly specific situations. That is exactly what I would conclude from our current state of the evidence. Well, thank you very much for joining us on The Health Report. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Neil Iyengar is a medical oncologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Centre in New York, and this is The Health Report. So Norman, while you were on holidays a few weeks ago, we Mm -hmm. covered the story of a man who was hospitalised with vomiting, abdominal pain, leg cramps and increased thirst. And he'd also lost close to 13 kilograms and he didn't need to lose that much weight. Do you know what was wrong with him? 
Um, I have looped back and I think it was <laughs> vitamin D overdose, wasn't it? Yes, vitamin D supplements. He'd been taking way too many of them. And I don't know if it's just me, but it feels like everywhere I look, I'm seeing other people ODing on vitamins. There was another, there was a different man who'd made headlines about uh, overdosing on vitamin D. There were women who've accidentally taken so much vitamin B6 that one woman's doctor thought she had multiple sclerosis and the other apparently lost vision in one eye, according to a story by our colleagues at ABC Melbourne. Yeah, if a little is good for you, more is not necessarily better. Well, exactly. So we're going to take a closer look at what's going on here with the help of Dr Ian Musgrave, who studies natural pharmacology at the University of Adelaide. Hi, Ian. Hello, how are you? Good. So is vitamin overdose actually on the rise or are we just hearing about it a lot at the moment? Um, it's a bit difficult to tell. Um, vitamin overdose uh, uh, is a, certainly a thing, um, and it seems to come in waves for example, uh, a lot of the vitamin D overdosing is occurring because uh, people have th thought that it might be a good way to uh, prevent COVID. Sadly, tragically, it's uh, virtually useless uh, uh, as a, uh, uh, a preventative for COVID. Um, vitamin B, um, one of the problems with the uh, B6 is that, uh, as uh, your colleague has said, um, we all know that vitamins are important for us. We all know that we need uh, vitamins for health. But uh, we think that, that because uh, a little bit is good for us, a lot maybe uh, is better. And sadly, tragically, with vitamins, uh, this isn't true. And so people are, and what, also what people don't realise is that um, uh, the B-group vitamins may be present in different kinds of supplements. So what's happened with one person, for example is that they were taking a number of different um, supplements and foods which contained uh, the, uh, B6, and it all added up, so they ended up with uh, B6 toxicity. Um, right, so you've got it from multiple different and, sources. And, and also, uh, we, we, we... sorry, can you say that again, please? They, they, it's adding up from different sources without them perhaps realising. Yes, indeed. So you... you uh, Unless you pay uh, very close attention to what you're taking, you may not understand that there's um, a vitamin, uh, a, a, enough vitamin B in everything you're taking to add up to a harmful dose. And again, most people don't think of vitamins having um, uh, toxic effects, um, the, especially the water-soluble vitamins like the B-group vitamins. We don't think of them as, as having potentially toxic effects. But, for example, B6 is uh, one where uh, it's relatively easy to uh, get up to a, 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 a dose which can cause nerve damage. So it's not necessarily, um, we don't necessarily think of it as being toxic per se, but if you're taking more than between 300 to 500 milligrams of uh, B6 over time, it can uh, cause uh, uh, nerve damage. Um and it, it, it's something that's not really widely known because until uh, until uh, the advent of high-potency um, uh, vitamin supplements, um, you know, the chances of getting a, a B6 overdose yeah. were um, 
marginal. Yeah, you weren't going to see it in if just from your diet. So what's going on here? Should we be regulating them better? If it's possible to get these sorts of effects, do people need to be better informed by, uh, presumably a lot of the time you're buying them from a pharmacist or you've been recommended to have them by someone who um, is in the health sphere, perhaps a naturopath or something like that. Do they need to be regulated a bit more like medicine rather than like food? Well, they are regulated by medicines in Australia. Like yeah, medicines they are, in they Australia. Are. Um, but uh, having said that, I would like to point out that um, within Australia, uh, medicines are regulated by the Therapeutic Goods Administration and they're regulated on two levels. You have um, low-risk medicines like vitamins, which are uh, regulated uh, via the Australian Register of Therapeutic Goods, um, uh, uh, where you... Uh, where you don't need to uh, require prescriptions or require a, a lot of information about it because they are, they're assuming that you will read the instructions on the, on the box and uh, and take them accordingly. And the, uh, the registered medicines, which are things uh, like, um, for example, uh, paracetamol, where we have not only strong evidence of um, them working, but also strong evidence about their safety um, right. So definitely. Sorry to cut you off. We're running out of time, no, but the but we're okay. running out of time. So, but the uh, upshot uh, is read uh, those labels. Yeah, and if it doesn't have an Austel or Ostar number on it, do not buy it. Thank you so much, Dr. Ian Musgrave, for joining us. Thank you. Dr. Ian Musgrave is a molecular pharmacologist and toxicologist at the University of Adelaide. Food labelling and the amount of added sugar in foods is a hot topic at the moment. Food Standards Australia New Zealand are currently looking at ways to help people choose lower sugar foods. But a study released on Friday has had a counterintuitive finding that putting warning labels about added sugar on packages didn't consistently make people less inclined to buy them. Well, to talk us through the findings and what they could mean is one of its authors, Miranda Blake. Welcome, Miranda. Thank you for having me, Tegan. So you did an online survey asking people whether they'd liked they'd buy things like breakfast cereal, yogurt, non-alcoholic drinks while testing out different styles of sugar warning labels. Were you surprised by the results? Yes, we were. We expected to find um, that these would affect the likelihood of selecting a high sugar product, um, and we didn't find that. But systematic reviews of studies with consumers have found that clearer labelling of added sugar on packaged foods does help consumers to pick lower sugar options. So I would say more research is needed, but we also did find that consumers strongly supported clear labelling of added sugar on packaging. So this suggests that if these labels were to be introduced, there would be strong consumer support for that policy. Right. So people weren't, like they were keen on them. They didn't, but what you're finding is it didn't really fit with previous findings. What could the disconnect be there? Mm, I mean, there's always the probability of just random chance in research. I think also... uh, you know, we found that consumers are strongly supportive of having that information so that they could make an informed decision. So um, while we, again, the research does suggest that providing this information could help consumers to make healthier choices, I think the bottom line is also that consumers deserve to have the information to make that informed decision for themselves. Right, because at the moment you can't see how much added sugar is in a product. That's correct. So in Australia, manufacturers of packaged foods often add sugar to products like breakfast cereals, yogurts and drinks, but there's currently no way 
for Australians to know how much added sugar is in a packaged food. So that's why we tested these seven different labelling options to see if any of them had an impact on the likelihood of selecting a high sugar option. Right. So that's one of the reasons why you think it should still be considered despite the sort of overarching outcome of your study. Are there other reasons as well? Yes. So we know that in order to have any other policies that are around added sugar, so for example, if we did education campaigns around added sugar or we um, restricted the marketing of products high in added sugar, we need to know how much added sugar is in products. So it's both important for providing information directly to consumers, but also support uh, other policies that might be at the level of the manufacturer or more broadly to support consumers to select products that are lower in added sugar. Is this going to be ammunition for people who disagree with the fact that warning labels should be on packaging? I hope not because I hope that they can see that, again, we had 85% of consumers who agreed that we need to set higher standards for how the food industry labels the foods we eat. And again, that the broader evidence does suggest that this probably does help consumers to select healthier options. So if we do introduce added sugar labelling policies, which the government is currently considering, that policy would need to be um, paired with an education campaign for consumers, particularly those with lower levels of literacy and numeracy, support them in, in how to use that information so that they can pick those products that are lowering added sugar. So what, how does this fit against other things that are on the table, for example, sugar tax and whether the new government might be, uh, where they might be heading in that direction or not? Well, it would be great to see if the Labor government would con- um, commit to an added sugar tax, either in food or drinks, preferably both. But I think what we can see is that, again, we need to be able to know how much added sugar is in food before we can introduce any policies. This is a really important step in supporting broader policies to support consumers to uh, eat products that are lower in added sugar that are better for their well-being. How do these sorts of interventions interact with each other if you've got more than one thing happening at once? Like you've just measured one thing in this study, but that's not really how it's going to work in the real world, just briefly. That's right. So we know from the example of tobacco regulation, for example, we saw you know, over many years, we had more and more policies were put into place and these can work together. So they can be greater than the sum of their parts. So added sugar labelling on its own may be made much more effective, for example, by having um, education campaigns around added sugar content and attacks around added sugar as well. So they can work together to support healthier consumer choices. It's one we're watching closely. Miranda, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Dr. Miranda Blake is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Global Centre for Preventive Health and Nutrition and the Institute for Health Transformation at Deakin University. One of the common questions that Tegan and I get about COVID is why there's so much variation in how people respond to the infection. One answer is in your genes. And there's a massive ongoing study into comparing people's genomes with how COVID-19 has affected them. Dr. Gita Pathak is a team leader in what's called the COVID-19 Host Genetics Initiative. Gita is based at Yale University School of Medicine in the United States. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. So you're not mapping the virus here. You're mapping the people who are infected with the virus to see what happens to them and whether there are specific genes involved in their experience of the virus. 
That is correct. The goal of the study is to understand human genetics response to the viral infection, which we know as COVID-19. We wanted to look at three different outcomes of COVID-19, specifically people who were critically ill from COVID, then people who were hospitalized due to COVID, and people who tested positive for COVID. So the least severe of the three definitions, and which genes might be associated with these three outcomes. And how many genomes have you managed to test? 60 studies from 25 countries, and that resulted in close to 3 million individuals' genetic profiles. And we found a total of 23 genes that show an association with COVID-19. So let's take severity. And this is in a European population by and large, a Caucasian population. Have you found any consistency in genes for severe disease? Yes. So genetic ancestry is different than what someone may identify themselves as, like ethnically or geographically. Mostly we do have genetic ancestry of the European descent, but we also have people who are genetically South Asian, East Asian, African ancestry, and that's separate from where they are geographically or what they identify as. So this is a bit like 23andMe or Ancestry.com where you send off your genes and you find out that you're 50% Greek and you didn't think you were 50% Greek. Correct. When we're looking at genetic profiles, it's really important to adjust for genetic ancestry and not specifically for what somebody identifies as. Some genetic variation is more common in one ancestry over others. And if we include people from these diverse ancestries, we can pick up these signals much quickly. So, for example, it was said in the early part of the pandemic that people of South Asian origin had more severe disease a higher risk of death. Did that mm-hmm. pan out in mm-hmm. your study? We did find one of the genetic variants that was more common in South Asian population relative to other populations, but that is just one variant. Genes tend to perform in a similar way across ancestries. They may vary based on their frequency in different ancestries, and that information helps us capture why one ancestry might be exhibiting a higher response or a softer response, but by and large, all the genes we saw, they tend to have a similar effect across all ancestries. And what were these genes doing to increase your vulnerability to severe disease? Some of the genes that we found were related to different lung functions. So, for example, we found something called SF. TPD, which is a lung surfactant protein. And it's already been known to be associated with different pulmonary functions. And there are other studies which have shown that this specific gene has been known with like respiratory distress syndrome. And just, in to, different just to explain, surfactant is the fluid, if you like, that lines the tubes yeah. of your lungs and keeps them open. And it's what's deficient in premature babies, causing uh, the respiratory disease of the newborn or the premature baby. So, in other words, the deficiency of this in adults may predispose you, unsurprisingly, to severe disease. Now, the question, of course, on everybody's lips now is, why do some people not seem to catch COVID-19? There's, some, there's a group of people who appear anecdotally to be resistant. Did you find COVID-19 resistance genes? Not in our work. Depending on how we look at the variant, the variants we find 
are associated with the COVID-19 outcome. But if there are people who may be on the opposite spectrum of these, so let's say like who are not carriers of this, they might be, uh, you know, resistant to COVID, but that specific study we haven't performed. But that's a good question for later. And just finally, any therapeutic insights that might direct people towards more effective medications to treat people who've got COVID or prevent it getting worse? The one good thing that we understand from this work is that we now have a good number of genes to specifically focus our efforts into. And now this can lead to efforts of drug repurposing or drug development. Did we find a specific drug? No, but we definitely found several targets that now could be investigated for different drugs. Gita, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. I really appreciate it. Dr. Gita Patak is a team leader in the COVID-19 host genetics initiative at Yale University School of Medicine. This has been the Health Report from me, Norman Swan. And me, Tegan Taylor. We'll both see you next week. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.